Good morning. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, thank you to Bruce and Pam for doing music for us today. Uh, I'd also like to thank everybody who uh, has donated money for this hospital in Ghana. I've said this before, but in these surrounding villages, some of these kids have never even seen a doctor before in their lifetimes. And um, so it's going to go to a great cause in um, helping support that hospital. And again, I just want to thank everybody who's uh, given to that so generously. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And that we have the opportunity to come together today to worship your great name. Lord, we want to lift up Doug. This minor stroke that he had yesterday, Lord, we pray for a, a speedy recovery. And we pray for a full and complete recovery for Doug. Lord, we pray for the doctors and nurses who are taking care of him. Lord, we are so thankful that he had Nick and his nieces with him at the time last night, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for that and uh, continue to pray for Doug and for his health. Lord, we also pray for Joy Harry with the procedure she has coming up on Tuesday. Lord, want to um, just pray for that to go well. Want to pray for a recovery for her. Pray for both her and Roger, Lord. Um, it's been a long couple of weeks and pray that she get to feeling better and um, pray for the wait for these next couple of days. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. As we start in the book of Galatians. Lord, we pray that we'd be pointed to you, to the justification through faith that comes through Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be pointed to your gospel in every single passage of this wonderful book from your holy word. Lord, we also pray for this meeting on Thursday for this Christian Academy. Again, Lord, we lift this up, that this is an opportunity for kids to be educated and to learn your word. Lord, and that is a good thing. In Jesus' name, amen. On a January afternoon in 2003, a father and his son walked through a local park in the, in the city of Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. Twin Lakes sits on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin. As you'd expect for a day in the middle of January, it was cold. The temperature was well below freezing. To that point in the season, there had been relatively little snowfall, and so the nearby sledding hill, which was often frequented by local children, sat empty. That fact, perhaps, made it all the more unlikely that a father and his son would be in the right place at the right time. As they were walking, they came to an outdoor porta potty where they felt like they heard something. It was a whimpering or whining sound to what must have been their absolute shock when they opened the door, wrapped in a canvas bag, was a baby boy. All alone in that bathroom, exposed to the cold, there is no way the child would have survived if he hadn't been found. Because of sin, 
The whole world is in a desperate situation which will bring death and from which we cannot save ourselves. And just like that baby boy who was found in that Wisconsin bathroom, we too can only know salvation through the intervention of a father and a son. We're beginning this morning in the book of Galatians. The most important theme that Paul will communicate in this letter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that even from these opening verses of this book. The main idea that I want to focus on in today's passage is that the world is dead in sin, but the gospel promises another world. And we'll be looking at the passage today in three parts. The defense of the gospel, the substance of the gospel, and the response to the gospel. And with that, we'll jump into our passage this morning. First part, the defense of the gospel. And I'm going to begin with two questions for you to consider. First question, who is Jesus? Second question, who is Paul? For the first question, who is Jesus? That's the most important question that anyone can answer. Is he a good teacher? Is he a good philosopher? Is he a good idea? Is he a good role model? Is he a good man? Or is he the Lord who died for your sins and the Son of God and the King of Kings? But who is Paul? Well, not as important to know Paul as it is to know Jesus. How you view Paul matters. And here's why. Because how you understand Paul will actually point to how you understand Jesus. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, we don't know every single detail of background information, but one thing seems pretty clear. There were people who were undermining Paul to the churches in Galatia. Who is Paul? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostles were people who had personally seen the risen Lord in the early church and who were commissioned to lead the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists the offices in the early church. It says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. The apostles are listed first in that list for a reason. They were the authority. We also see this idea in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. In the book of Acts, after the ascension of the risen Jesus in chapter 1, and with Judas out of the picture, the first thing that next happens is that they appoint another apostle, Matthias. The apostle Stephen dies in Acts chapter 7. And we see Paul later become an apostle. After that, we never see another apostle being replaced. And again, as people who had witnessed the risen Jesus and given the unique role of the apostles in the early church, I would argue that the office of apostle died out in the age of the original apostles. So, as I said a moment ago, there were people who were undermining Paul and his apostolic authority. People still do that with Paul. Many liberal Christians undermine Paul's writings as 
just his opinion and not scripture and therefore not authoritative. Paul was just one Christian giving his, his views on the scriptures that are no more inherently valuable than anyone else's. But that's why the answer to my second question matters so much. Who is Paul? Is he just some guy who had some thoughts about Jesus? Or is he a man who personally saw the risen Jesus and who was personally called by Jesus to be an apostle? Two radically different views of who Paul is. Several years ago, I was part of a Bible study going through the book of Galatians with a church back home in Ohio. I didn't attend the church, but I had a friend who was a pastor who was starting a uh, small group for young professionals. And so I tagged along. And in Galatians, there are some places where Paul gets pretty heated. For good reason. People were trying to preach a false gospel and mislead churches. But I'll never forget when we got to chapter 3, where Paul begins by saying, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And people in the group basically thought that Paul was being too mean. He wasn't, if you believe Galatians is God's word. What you think about Paul matters to what you think about the rest of the New Testament. So I again ask, who is he? I believe that he's called to be an apostle, and that this was affirmed by the confirmation of the other apostles, by the history of the church, by the fact that the early church viewed his writings to be authoritative and have apostolic authority, by the account of him being a witness to the risen Jesus and the radical conversion that he had as a persecutor of the church, who transformed into somebody who was later a martyr for the church, and because of the signs and wonders that he did during his apostolic ministry. And I think that'll hopefully give some more background and meaning to this first verse of chapter 1. So we'll look at that now. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. All of them begin with his first name. That was a standard letter-writing practice at the time. It's important to remember when we read Paul, we call them books, and that's fine, but they were really written as letters. Now, when we write a letter, or send a note, or write an email, or send a text message, there's certain communication protocols that are common and expected in those various forms of communication. If someone starts a text message by saying, Dear Josh, I assume that they're probably over the age of 70. <laughs> There's different things we expect commonly in these various types of writings. If somebody says in a text message, Sincerely, Mike. Once again, that's not typically how people write text messages. In a letter, that's fine, but a text message isn't a letter. There's different ways how we communicate in different formats. If you write an email, you typically begin with the name of the person to whom you're sending the email. And then close with your name as the sender. In first century letter writing, you typically begin with the name of the sender because that's the first thing that the receiver sees. As we've already discussed, Paul affirms his apostolic authority. In nine of his 13 letters, Paul mentions his 
apostolic office in his opening. So he usually does it, but he does not always do it. But there are a couple of unique things about Galatians. First, Paul doesn't defend his apostolic authority in his other letters as fervently as he does in Galatians. He usually takes it as a given that his readers will accept that as a fact. In Galatians, he says he's an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is an apostle because of a divine calling. It's not because he says so. It's not even ultimately because the other apostles think so. In the second half of chapter 1, Paul will again give an extended version of his early actions after he came to faith in Christ. And he'll give a long defense of his apostolic ministry. There is no section in Paul's letters where he goes into such great detail to explain why he is authentically an apostle. And here's why it matters so much in this letter. When people were downplaying Paul's authority, his writing, his teaching, then it also makes it easy to downplay his message. Paul talks so much about being an apostle, not because he's insecure. Paul isn't being vain. It matters that they know, and that they know he's an apostle of Jesus Because Paul has a message of the truth about Jesus Christ. That he is the Lord who has died, who has risen from the dead, who has reconciled sinful people to God through Christ alone. And when you undermine the authority of Paul, you undermine the authority of the gospel that he preaches. And so Paul so fervently defends his apostolic authority because he needs to defend the gospel itself in churches where there have been people who have attempted to distort the truth. And he'll be pointing to this gospel, even from this first verse, where he says, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has led to a paradigm shift in human history and in salvation history. Everything changes because of the cross and because we have a risen Lord. And Paul will point to that gospel. Because that's what this letter is truly all about. In verse 2, Paul says, And to all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. He says, all the brothers. Paul includes mentioning his associates in his opening salutation. We don't know exactly who was with him when he wrote Galatians. But notice that he doesn't call them apostles. He calls them brothers, while Paul is an apostle. And then he addresses his letter to the churches of Galatia. And we've discussed this over the last couple of weeks. This was the region to which Paul had traveled during his first missionary journey. He shared the gospel. Many people came to faith, but there were also many who were hostile to the gospel. And writing to the Galatians, there were people who sought to dilute or distort the truth of the gospel. And again, as I've said a couple of times, Paul writes this letter to defend the gospel. We come to our second point, the substance of the gospel, looking at verse 3. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The mention of grace and peace is standard in the opening of Paul's letters. He mentions grace and peace in the beginning of each of his 13 letters. These two words are packed with theological meaning. Grace is the unmerited favor of God that he grants to us because of the gospel. Grace is a gift. It's something that we cannot earn or deserve. And because of grace, there is peace made with God. And the ordering matters. It's grace, and then because of grace, there is peace. The grace and peace does not come from ourselves, but as Paul says, the source of it is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In three verses, Paul has pointed to both the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, and now he points to the lordship of Jesus. For Christians reading this letter today, it can be easy to take these first few verses for granted, to read over them pretty quickly. But Paul is making important statements about Jesus, especially when we remember that people were undermining the gospel to these Galatian churches. But really, it's just as important for us to remember what Paul is saying here, because there are so many people in our own time and in our own society who also try to undermine and distort the gospel. Christianity is not a life philosophy. It is the message of Jesus Christ who literally died and literally rose so that all who believe in him can literally have eternal life through Christ. Today, people so often will acknowledge that Jesus really existed, but then totally disregard the reality of who he is. So many people love a few moral teachings of Jesus here or there, but get real quiet when the exclusivity of Christ gets mentioned. It's really easy to be a cultural Christian, but are you a Christ-centered Christian? Paul will say more about that in verse 4. Now, when I read this next verse, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this what I really believe? Because Paul is pointing to the gospel. Talking about Jesus, he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There are three significant things Paul says in this verse. Jesus gave himself for our sins. This is something that Jesus himself talks about during his ministry. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's sacrificial language, and we also see it in Galatians. And we've talked about this biblical theme of sacrifice before. Sacrifice points us to the cost of forgiveness. In the Old Testament, you couldn't just sacrifice any old thing. It had to be animals without blemish. It was literally costly. And it was also an act of faith to trust that the Lord would still provide even when you made the sacrifice. It points to God's requirement for holiness and the necessity of atonement. Most significantly, the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to the greater sacrifice that would be fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. 
When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I could not pay the cost of my sins. You could not pay the cost for your sins. We could not make it right. But Jesus could on the cross. Some hear that message and are offended by it. They don't think that they really need Jesus. They think, I didn't even ask him to die for me. Why is that necessary? Why couldn't the gracious God just forgive me? Because a righteous Savior going to the cross, being sacrificed for our sins, in that, Jesus is showing us just how costly sin is. And this is a point to which Paul will later build up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now again, some will be repulsed by that message. But among those who believe that Jesus died to forgive sinners, even then, people still have different views of how to respond to that. Some treat that as a justification or a license to sin. We're forgiven. Love. Love, love, love. Jesus is love. He loves you. He'll forgive you no matter what you do. Jesus is gracious. But we can't misuse it and shouldn't misuse it as a license to do whatever we want. The problem is that too many people want the salvation without the Savior. Jesus did give himself for our sins. The text continues. To deliver us from the present evil age. The Greek word translated as deliver here can also mean rescue. And I think that's perhaps a more helpful way to read this verse. English Bible translations are relatively evenly split between deliver versus rescue here. At the cross, Jesus has rescued us. We were helpless and dead in sin. I read a story this week about a roller coaster that got stuck at an amusement park in California in 2016. 21 riders were trapped 148 feet up in the air. The ride could not be lowered, so they called fire crews to get a ladder. Guess what? The ladder wasn't tall enough. Rescue crews had to put on harnesses themselves, go into the ride, and one by one, they took out each passenger and had to manually lower them 148 feet to the ground. I would have died, but they rescued them. Those people were not saving themselves. They were not getting down by themselves. Without a rescuer, they were hopeless. We were hopeless at the height of our sins when Jesus came to our rescue. But as I said, many want the salvation without the Savior. I've said this many times before, but Jesus didn't die to keep us exactly the same. He died to bring us into true life. And again, when we mess up, we should be thankful that there is grace. But we should also look to the life that Jesus wants us to live in him. Now, there are many things Jesus rescues us from. The wrath of God, the penalty of our sins. But he has also rescued us, as the text says, from the present evil age. 
The present evil age is the state of the fallen world. Jewish theology had the idea of two ages, where there would be a new age that would be greater than the present age. That idea gets picked up in the New Testament. Jesus makes several references to a distinction between ages. In one sense, the new age has already been realized because of the cross. In Christ, we are forgiven. We have spiritual blessings. We have an inheritance through Jesus. What's more, we have a reason for hope. And we have a citizenship in heaven. But we still live in a world where there is sin. But as people who have dual citizenship. I think of when Carrie was pregnant with Robbie. In one sense, especially with the firstborn, you're already preparing for parenthood. Especially for the mother. You're already having to make different lifestyle choices for the health of the baby. And then Carrie meticulously would have to measure out her coffee to make sure she didn't get too much caffeine. Had to give up her beloved nightly cigar. She doesn't smoke cigars. (laughs) You're making different decisions on spending. You're thinking about the future. It's a time pregnancy between two ages. There's this period, again, with the first board where you have no kids... And then the baby comes. But between that, during the pregnancy, there's some overlap between the two times. And Christ, we live in a period of overlap between the old and the new. Where we are in a world that has fallen, but with a new identity in Christ. Where we live in a world where there is sin, but where we have hope of the gospel. Where we live in a world where there is still death, but where we're given the Holy Spirit. Where we struggle with our own sins, but where we have grace and peace. We want the salvation without the Savior. We, when we do that, we cheapen the grace of Christ and what he has done. It's not merely a matter of forgiveness so that we can just keep on sinning. But it is a rescue from a world of sin. Do you look at the gospel as a rescue mission? For the people trapped in that roller coaster. The rescue crew did not go up to save them just so that they could stay on the ride. It was so they could get out. The world is dead in sin, but the gospel promises us another world. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. The last part of verse 4, it's on the screen, says, According to the will of our God and Father, it was the divine plan from all of eternity. It was the divine rescue that was the only way to rescue a sinful world from the present evil age. It had to be a divine plan because sinful people could not create our own perfect future. We can't create perfection. How often do we make plans? Things we're going to do, we're going to just totally change everything up and, and don't do it. We could not create a new age where we overcome disease and death, let alone sin. Because we continue to sin and the world has fallen. But we have a Savior who has overcome the world. And he did that by giving himself for our sins. The world is dead in sin, but the gospel promises us another world. We come to our third point. This third point is actually pretty brief. The response to the gospel. Verse 5. After Paul has talked about Jesus 
rescuing us according to the will of God the Father. Paul says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To know the gospel, to know the forgiveness which is found in Christ, is meant to cause a response of praise. Now, if you don't believe in the gospel, if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you are not born again in Christ, then really there's no reason for you to join in this response of praise. Praise and giving glory to God follows from knowing you are forgiven. And the more you're aware of your sin, the more heartfelt the praise. And the more we look to the cross, the more we can praise. And the more that we appreciate that we had a need for a rescue, the greater the praise. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus died to rescue us from the present evil age. But as Christians, so often we go through life and we look no different from the rest of the world. As I've said, we're living in an overlap between the two ages. Though the world has fallen, Christians are living in the world as those who have been rescued. But I'll use myself as an example. So often, I feel like I'm living much more in the present age than the new age. So often, I feel like the stresses and worries steal my joy. When there should be a joy in Christ, that stress cannot overcome. So often, I struggle to love my neighbor as myself. There are a million reasons, a million excuses we can find to be unloving after all. There are lots of people who we cross paths with who are hard to love. But that's the heart of the present age, not the new age. We have a Savior who loves us even in our sins. We have a Savior who knows us even at our worst, and yet he still loves us. Yet, we can make all sorts of justifications in our own hearts to look down on someone, or to feel superior, or to feel contempt for another, or to judge another. So often, I let little annoyances get to me. Something breaking, having to wait on the phone with customer service, and unforeseen change in my schedule can get me so annoyed and in such a bad mood. Is it a sin? Not inherently, necessarily, but when we do that, which age are we acting like we're living for? The present or the new? So often we lose perspective or perhaps never had it. The present age is our default. It's what we were all born into and remain in without Christ. It's familiar and comfortable. Like a person who moves from another region or another country. It's like an accent that we can never lose. And sadly, so often, for so many Christians, we follow the ways of the world. We're invited, when we're invited to follow something so much greater. In The Magician's Nephew, from the Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis gives a fantastical description of Narnia. Lewis writes, Then two wonders happened at the same moment. One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment, there had been nothing but darkness. 
Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. If you had seen and heard it, as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing, and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. Glory be, said the caddy. I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. The Chronicles of Narnia is a work of fiction, but I think there's a powerful insight in that observation. How do we live when we look to the things of God that he has planned for us, the things that Jesus has promised us, and the things he is preparing for us? When someone wins a major lottery, depending on the state, they don't get the check the next day. It can actually take up to several weeks to get the payment. But imagine that you knew that you were going to have millions of dollars in a few weeks. You'd be living differently, even though you didn't yet have the money. Through Christ, there are infinite blessings and riches. Some of them we enjoy now, but they are a foretaste of what we will enjoy in the new age. But in knowing the good things that Jesus has for us, that can and should impact how we live today. Again, while we're in the overlap of the two ages, we'll never fully escape this present evil age on this side of heaven. But so often, we live and look like we're more focused on this age than what is to come. How do we do it? How do we focus more on the new than the present? It's certainly not like we just flip a switch ourselves. It's not that simple. But I'll say this. It's a matter of where we look. Are we mainly just looking at what's around us? Or are we loving the Lord with all of our mind? It's what we think about. Are we constantly focused on the stresses of life, on our hobbies, on ourselves? Or are we constantly reminding ourselves of God's promises and blessings that he has made to us? It's in the things that we value. Do we just care about the American dream, or about our comfort, or about our stuff? Or do we value eternal things? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a challenge. It's a struggle between the two ages, because we are not yet perfect in Christ. But the more we are mindful of the things of God, the more we remind ourselves that we were made for a different age, the more closely we walk with Christ and follow the Lord, the more we will live in the overlap towards heaven on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you that we have a Savior who has rescued us. Lord, that we were helpless. We were trapped, stuck in sin, and Jesus has come. Lord, may we rejoice in that. May we know that we are great sinners, but that we have a great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.